Isaiah 25, verses 1 to 9. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you, cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading can be found on page 1090, 1090. It's taken from John, chapter 21, and it starts at verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin. Lord God, thank you for your word which is open before us this morning. Please, would you help us to feed on you in our hearts. Please, would your servants have open ears and hearts this morning that we might greater glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd be greatly encouraged if you would have that passage open at John 21 uh, and look at verse 12. This is a great verse in the New Testament. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It's probably the ultimate wish you were here moment in the New Testament. None of the disciples dared ask him. They knew it was the Lord. Here is the risen Jesus. Someone they knew and yet radically different, belonging to a different existence, the first fruits of the new creation. 
as the Apostle Paul puts it. And here's the Lord putting the disciples at ease and barbecuing them breakfast. Isn't that incredible? It's full of power and resonance. It's a meal which we can look back to other meals that Jesus provided for his people, the feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper. It looks back and it looks forward. It's grand and yet it's simple. It's every day and it's out of this world, a bit like the resurrection. Christ is risen. Risen not just in our hearts and in our minds, not just in a spiritual subjective sense, but bodily risen. Jesus is actually risen. He's before them, preparing a fire, flipping over coals, turning fish and eating with them. Now, John's Gospel is an incredible Gospel. It's, it's probably my favourite of the four. It's a Gospel full of signs. And signs are events uh, or things which point beyond themselves to something else. And they act as evidences for you and I, evidences which have a purpose, so that you and I may stop and take notice and believe. Look at John chapter 20 and verse 30, just before our reading. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Flick over the page and look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. Luke begins the next phase of his story. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What are we thinking about this morning? We're thinking about the heartbeat of the Christian faith. It's about a God who's overcome death. He's this world's Lord. And he's having breakfast with his disciples on the beach. He's feeding them. And ghosts, well, ghosts don't usually do breakfast, do they? These fishermen, these disciples, they didn't suffer fools gladly. They knew, like we know, that dead people don't come back to life. Dead men don't raise, but this man, he's alive. Now, this is no hallucination. The master of the universe, the Lord of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, is on the beach enjoying the morning sun, and he's giving these lads some fish. Just try and imagine how these guys would have felt. It's been a roller coaster 10 days or so for Jesus' disciples, right? Emotionally speaking. They've had the high of Palm Sunday. As Jesus the King comes into the city and the people shout, Hosanna! Blessed be the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! And then five days later, he's led out of the city where he's nailed to a cross to die. He's buried in a tomb. And then 72 hours later, the stone that covered the entrance to the tomb has been rolled away. There's no body inside. There's no sign of Jesus there. And then the peace to resistance, they see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive. I mean, what do you do when you've been on an intense emotional roller coaster? Well, Peter says in verse 3, I'm going fishing. That's a pretty chilled out thing to do, isn't it? To hop into a boat and go fishing. Seven, seven of the disciples jump into the boat for a spot of night fishing on the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's a beautiful place. It's lovely. 
And, and I think this is the first of two miracles we see here. Here's the first miracle. Seven disciples, most of them experienced fishermen, head out in familiar waters, and at the end of verse 3, we're told that they caught nothing. I mean, that's a miracle in itself, isn't it? They didn't catch anything. There were no fish all night long. They'd been out fishing. What's that all about, you might ask? Could it be that there's no future for the disciples in this kind of fishing? Well, I think it's possible, isn't it? I think it's possible. A few years ago, some friends and I went on a half-day boat fish um, off the needles on the Isle of Wight. It cost me the best part of £100 to go boat fishing. And we took this boat out, and the captain all the way out there was telling us these wonderful stories of all week they'd been catching whoppers. So he took us to this spot where we were going to catch some fish. I'm baited up, ready to go. The, kind of, the line goes out, and what happens? Four hours later, I'd caught absolutely nothing. I'd caught nothing. There's a guy who's in the 1030 service called Stuart Harris. He's a fisherman, and he's got a YouTube channel, and so he and I decided to go out fishing um, a couple of months ago off the pier here in Southsea. Um, the weather was awful, and we had a great time. We had a good time together. But the only thing that I caught other than a cold was the pier itself, <laughs> which was just crazy. I got snagged and lost a whole load of Stuart's tackle. But it was helpful, it was helpful for me, not least for this illustration, for this sermon, but also to know that if things in parish ministry don't work out, well then I know that fishing isn't a career that I'm supposed to take up either. Look down at our text with me. I don't know how good you are at receiving instructions early in the morning. I'm not particularly good at it. Particularly after a fruitless and tireless all-nighter at work. Bright and early, someone says something like this. Look at verse 5. Friends, literally, lads, haven't you caught any fish? I mean, how grumpy would your no be? I mean, mine would be very grumpy. Uh, and then he said in verse 6, throw your net on the right side of the boat, there you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to hold the net in because of the large numbers of fish. Well, here's the second miracle. It's a supernatural provision from God. It's a supernatural feeding. At the word of Jesus, they are inundated with fish, unable to even haul in the nets. Now, when I caught the pier when I was out fishing with Stuart, there was the briefest of moments when I thought I'd caught a whopper. I mean, the rod bent over, um, and, and kind of I pulled, and it was like it moved, but I think it was just getting well and truly jammed. Um, and there was this momentary joy that I experienced, but then the, reali- then the realization that I was snagged. And the only thing I could do was cut the line. But these guys, what a catch. What joy they would have had, unable to haul in this catch because there are so many fish. And in all this, there's a moment of recognition for John. He says in verse 7, It is the Lord. And no quicker had John said this than Peter's out of the boat, in the water, making his way to the shore. And the lads are hot on their heels with the boat and the fish. The risen Lord is on the beach, and he's got the barbecue on. He's preparing fish finger sandwiches for everyone, and it's going to be a feast. Look at verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it already. And some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed on board and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153 whoppers. But with even so many, the net was not torn. Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've just caught. They've got a net full of fish, 
153. And what Jesus does here is remarkable, isn't it? Bring some of what you've just caught. Hang on a minute. Jesus, you've just told us to throw the net out. It's, surely that's your catch, isn't it? You told us what to do. But Jesus is saying, bring your gifts. Bring your talents. Bring your labours. Bring the work of your hands. Fishing with Jesus is always fruitful. But that's the thing. You've got to fish with Jesus in your boat. And God here shows us that he meets our every need. Everything that we have has been credited to us by our loving God who meets our every need. Well, what about the shape of my bank account? Well, even that. God's given us our talents, our abilities. He's given us our bodies and our intellects. He's given us this creation to use. He's given us breath to fill our lungs and a place for each one of us to fish from. So we can go out and we can make money to sort out our bank accounts. But the point is he wants to be in it with us, right? Well, I think there's two really big things we've got to take away from this passage. First is this, Jesus feeds his apostles. Jesus is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who promises to keep and feed his sheep. Back in John chapter 10, uh, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's a wonderful promise for us to take away. Here is the risen Christ on the beach feeding the disciples. This is his primary concern after his resurrection to feed his disciples. Look at verse 13. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Why is that so significant? Now they've been fed by Jesus. Through being fed themselves by Jesus, they can go out and they can feed others. It's like they've got Jesus' stamp of approval on them now. They're his sheep. They're the one that Jesus has fed. And now they can go out and feed others. D.T. Niles, the Sri Lankan theologian and Methodist preacher, well, it was he who first said, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So the application for us to take away from our text is this. Jesus fed his apostles on that beach. Their witness is true and sure and satisfactory for us. This testimony has been preserved for 2,000 years, and it's the real deal. This is where we find bread. This is where we go to be satisfied and to have our hunger filled. Look at the very last two verses of John's Gospel. It says, This is the disciple who testifies to these things, and he wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. We thought about these two miracles of no fish and then a boatload of fish. We've thought about the words that's been written and recorded. It's authoritative and it's um, authenticated by Jesus. And it's so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life and life in his name. Well, what's the, what's the question for us then? Do we believe? Do you believe? Peter believed 
And he'd been fed by Jesus. Have you been fed by Jesus? Well, following this, Jesus then calls his apostles to feed his sheep. After they've eaten, look at verse 15. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? See, the one who boasted about sticking with Jesus, even if everyone else falls away, he says, I won't fall away. But he denied Jesus three times, didn't he, in the high priest's house. And here we see Jesus reinstated as a shepherd. A shepherd under the good shepherd. Look at verse uh, 16. Sorry, verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Verse 16, do you truly love me? Verse 17, do you love me? It's almost like Jesus is recapitulating this denial three times that Peter had with these new statements. He's saying, your past failures are way back in the rearview mirror. Now Jesus reinstates Peter. Before Jesus' death, Peter had no message for Jesus' sheep. But now he's got his own message to speak about the forgiveness that he's experienced from Jesus and the eternal life of those who believe. He's got bread and he's got bread to share. Well, what's the outworking of that love? What does a loving shepherd do for a flock? Do you love me? Verse 15, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Third time, to the point of hurt. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Lambs, sheep, sheep, feed, tend, feed. I don't know what the difference is here. Some say it's the difference between new converts and older believers as sheep. Uh, Some want to try and make a difference between loving and tending. I'm not sure about all that. But I think what Jesus is saying is, is this. You want to be a pastor? You want to be a teacher? You want to be a small group leader? You want to be a shepherd? Then feed my sheep. Don't starve my sheep. Don't set your concern on those who are not my sheep. It's perhaps one of the greatest tragedies in the modern church is to buy into this idea of seeker-sensitive worship. The claim is if we want the church to go, then design the church to meet the, des- to meet the desires of non-Christians. But Romans chapter 3, verse 11 says, in our natural state, no one seeks after God. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century revivalist preacher said, the seeking after God should be the main business of the life of the Christian. So seeking after God in Jesus, well, it starts at conversion, but it doesn't stop there. A true seeker-sensitive worship is designed for Christians. The purpose of meeting on a Sunday morning, the gathered people, the ecclesia, the people of God who've been rescued out of the world into the body of Christ, well, their purpose as you meet on a Sunday morning is to be fed as sheep of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're to do evangelism. Yes, we're to do outreach. Yes, we're to do ministries of mercy. But Sunday mornings belong to the sheep. They belong to you. The vicar of the church is responsible for feeding the sheep and so is each one of us, right? Now, if someone comes in, if a, if a goat comes into our service, now that's cool. We want to welcome the goats in, right? We want the goats to come in. But as the goats come in, we don't change the food so that we feed goat's food to sheep. Worship is for the sheep. That's what we're to do. And when Jesus talks to someone, he doesn't say, look, if you love me, feed the goats. He says, feed the sheep. He doesn't say, for heaven's sake, tend, tend, to, the, tend to your own sheep. He's saying, 
feed my sheep, tend to my sheep. This is Jesus' church, isn't it? It's Jesus' sheep that are being fed. Uh, we don't just give milk. We want spiritual food. We want the, the meat of the word of God. If I was to open up your spiritual refrigerator and look at what you've been eating this week, would it be enough to satisfy you? To feed once a week, is that enough? Would you do that to a child? I think um, the modern church needs to think really seriously about how much we're feeding on the Word of God. I think there's a real problem in this generation, actually. The people that I speak to about the gospel have no idea about what it teaches. And if we're a church who are feeding sheep, well, we need to be well fed so that we can point other people to where they can find bread. And we need the Lord's help as we do this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think about evangelism this year, please would we know that you're with us in the boat. Lord, as we think about discipleship, please remind us that your people are your sheep and they're not ours. Please help us to love and care and to serve and to lay down our lives that your church might be built uh, and that we be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.